Hello, everybody. It's so good to have each of you here in the house of the Lord today. We're continuing today in our series of messages from 2 Corinthians, this treasure in jars of clay. I'd like to tell you today about the high point in my academic career. Uh, it happened in uh, November of 1989. So, yes, I peaked early. Um, <laughs> I was in my undergrad studies at Baylor. I was taking an art elective, art history elective, I'm sorry. Uh, Greek art was the class. And we had an exam, and I took my exam, and then, you know, the professor graded them, and uh, he was giving back uh, the graded exams in class, and he handed out all the exams, and I patiently waited, and he did not give me my exam. And I was wondering what was going on when he said, class, uh, I have an exam here that is an example of the kind of exams I want to see from you. I have made copies if you want to see for yourself what I'm talking about. And then he returned my exam to me. Uh, that was the best academic day I have had in my life. I, I was on cloud nine. Uh, you know an exam I would rather not tell you about? My first exam in college algebra. I didn't keep that one. I did keep this one. I have it right here. This is the one I was just telling you about. But I didn't keep that one. Um, so I can't, I can't say with absolute certainty, but I think I got a 61. Uh, and I had uh, academic scholarships, you know, you had to keep a certain grade, so it was a big deal for me to fail a class. But I had been, uh, it's not that I ignored my homework, I read the book like I was told, and I, I didn't do any of the exercises, but I read it, and I thought I understood, and I went into the exam thinking I understood perfectly well how to take this exam, and obviously I didn't. Um, I... Uh, that was an example in which my own arrogance uh, led me to face the threat of failing a class. Uh, that's not the kind of thing I like to brag about. You know, uh, that's really a thing that Paul has been talking about in these final three chapters of his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter. This idea of boasting and what exactly is it that we boast about? What exactly is it that we take pride in? That's a key thought through these three chapters. And the word boast appears over and over and over again in these chapters. Uh, Paul suggests a very different approach to boasting than we might expect. I have titled today's message, A Fool's Boast. And we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll finish the chapter, verses 16 through 33. Uh, before I start reading it, uh, I, I, I do want to talk a little bit about what Paul is doing in these chapters. Because already in last week's chapter we were looking at, the first half of chapter 11, he's already asked permission to boast about something. And what he boasts about that we were looking at last week is that when he was doing his ministry for a year and a half in Corinth, he did not take a penny from anybody. 
He worked hard with his own two hands and he even let other congregations of, of Christians who had a lot less money than the Corinthian believers. He let them support him because he was so determined to show these wealthy Roman citizen Christians in Corinth a completely different idea of what kingdom is supposed to look like. So that, that's his start in boasting, but he's going to continue, and not just in the passage we're looking at today, uh, he's going to continue in the passage after the one we're looking at today, talking about boasting. And you might wonder, why is Paul doing that? It, it doesn't seem right. That's not the kind of thing we're accustomed to seeing Paul do, is boast about things. Um, and uh, I, I think we have here an example of Paul putting into practice what we find in Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Uh, verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So you've, you've experienced that, right? You get into the kind of argument where you start saying the kind of nonsense the other person is saying, and you end up being just as big a fool as they are. You might think that's what Paul's doing here, but here I think what he's doing is, is verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And there is a moment where you use the very argumentation, the very thought processes, the very logic of the fool to try to help him to see the absurdity of his own point of view. And I think that's what Paul is doing in these chapters. I'm very convinced that that's the case. He is trying to prevent, uh, present a fool's boast. And he's using the, the language of these false teachers in the church in Corinth to expose the, the absurdity of this. And he's going to use that very language to present something completely uh, diametrically opposed to what these people in Corinth are saying. So let's, let's go ahead and read it. Verse 16. Again I say, let no one think me foolish. But if you do, then receive me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying in this project of boasting, I say not in accordance with the Lord, but as from foolishness. Since many people are boasting according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools since you are so wise. For you bear it if anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours you, if anyone takes advantage of you, if anyone is arrogant towards you, if anyone strikes you in the face. To our shame I say this, we were too weak for that. I think you can, you can hear the irony, the sarcasm in Paul's tone here, right? And <clears throat> I think it's, it, it's impossible to miss. He's very careful throughout this whole passage to throw in uh, statements that make it clear, please understand what I'm doing here. Uh, this is a, 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 a sarcastic, ironic approach to the topic. So he's very clear uh, that what I'm trying to tell you here, this isn't something from the Lord. This isn't the way the Lord is asking us to uh, conduct ourselves, to go around bragging about what we've done or what we are. Uh, this is actually, I am uh, coming from a position of foolishness. And I'm using this to undermine that very foolishness that I'm trying to respond to. 
So, I mean, and the, he says, don't, don't consider me a fool, but then he's like, well, wait. Let me continue in this line of argumentation. So, yeah, receive me as a fool so I can do a little more boasting. And this project of boasting he's laying out for them, he's saying, this isn't something from the Lord. This is foolishness. But here's my opponent's in Corinth are boasting according to the flesh. It's interesting that in chapter 10 he defends against the accusation that he is operating according to the flesh and he says, no sir. What we've been up to is not something we've been doing in our own strength but uh, the weapons in this spiritual war we've been fighting are, are powerful weapons of God because God is the one doing the battle. And he's been talking about that in chapter 10 verse 2 where uh, He's accused of operating according to the flesh. But Paul is saying that that is exactly what these people in Corinth are doing. They are bragging about things according to the flesh. And that's Paul's shorthand for uh, what we can do on our own if we take God out of the equation. So that doesn't just mean physical things. It means anything I can do as an animated piece of meat and uh, we take God out of the equation, the Spirit of God, all of that, and what, what do I bring to the table with my, uh, everything I have, my body, my emotions, my intellect, all of that. Uh, that is what Paul is talking about when he talks about boasting according to the flesh. So these guys are boasting about what they have, what they are, what they have accomplished, not who God is, not what God has accomplished, not what God does but what they are and do. So Paul says, okay, let me do the same. Um, and before he jumps into this second boast, he has a word of correction for the Corinthians. You guys think you're so wise, apparently. You think it's, you're so wise that you can afford to tolerate fools. You can afford to put up with fools. What do I mean by that? Well, you have let people show up in your congregation and make slaves out of you. Now, as this progresses, it'll become clear his opponents are Jewish. In fact, one of their points of pride is their Jewish heritage. So uh, it's very likely that these might even come from Jerusalem itself. These are Jews who are very proud of their identity as Jews. And perhaps this idea of them enslaving people in Corinth, maybe this is another flavor of the Judaizing people who had come out into the Gentile world from Jerusalem and were trying to go to all the congregations and convince all the Gentiles that they had to operate under the uh, rituals of the Old Covenant. And they had to keep all of the rituals of the Law of Moses to be okay with God. Perhaps that's what he means by enslaving you. But it might simply mean that their approach to leadership among them was prideful and that they were treating the people in the church as their own servants. And they were uh, moving around with great pride among them and making them uh, attend to them hand and foot like they were slaves. We see that in the Christian world today. Christian leaders who move around at, in great 
pride and arrogance surrounded by bodyguards and uh, everyone carries everything for them and they have their green rooms and their places and nobody can come near and touch them because they are so special and spectacularly above everybody else and everybody else is lucky to be in their presence. That's the kind of attitude Paul is describing, people who are reducing the congregation to the status of slaves by raising themselves up so far above them and devouring them, taking from them rather than giving anything to them, taking advantage of them, being arrogant, treating them as less than and placing themselves above and Paul uh, paints an image. Basically what it amounts to is you've let them slap you in the face and done nothing about it. Now, to this day, we don't live in what I would call an honor-shame culture. That is the culture they lived in, though where honor and shame were the driving forces culturally. So the worst thing that could happen to somebody is for you to be shamed in front of everybody else. And being slapped in the face is, to this day, one of the most shaming things that anybody can do to you. The kind of thing you don't just take. You respond in some way. And Paul says, you're letting these people just slap you in the face and you're doing nothing about it. You've let them reduce you and raise themselves up among you. And with dripping irony, he says, I am so ashamed to say that we were too weak to treat you guys that way. We weren't strong enough. We weren't glorious enough to parade around among you like we were gods on earth. We were too weak to treat you that way. Why do people let other people in the church treat them this way? I, I have an idea. It's because you are concerned with that person's approval, right? And when you, you come across some great shining star leader in the Christian church, somebody that everybody loves and adores and thinks is the best thing since sliced bread, you want that person to think well of you. And you will put up with any kind of treatment just to get close. Why do people do this in the church? Because they've taken their eyes off Jesus and put them on somebody else. And you're not seeking God's approval. You're seeking some human being's approval. And you'll put up with anything. And I'm, I'm tired of watching these uh, documentaries and shows about great scandals in the Christian church where leaders have abused their authority immensely over people. And you hear people, uh, person after person, oh, this person made me feel so special before they started abusing me. And it was uh, such a wonderful feeling to be near them. Well, stop worshiping people and try to draw near to Jesus. Don't let people enslave you. Don't let other human beings become God for you. And Paul is correcting this tendency among the Corinthians. You have allowed people to treat you this way because you've taken your eyes off Jesus and you put them on something else. 
What examples do you see in the church that we tolerate or even welcome behavior that we should not tolerate? And why do we do that? Let's keep going, the second half of verse 21. But whatever anyone else might dare to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. I too dare. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? In the Greek there, it's literally seed of Abraham. So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind here. I'm even more so. (coughs) Now, it's impossible to read this and not understand that Paul is using irony here. And just in case we miss it, he throws in things like, I'm speaking as a fool or I'm out of my mind to even say this kind of thing. So... He's using irony here. We're not meant to read this as, yeah, let's, let's throw a bragging party at church. But hear what I'm trying to say. Listen to the, to the and, and this is a kind of an advanced rhetorical device he's using here to expose the, the folly of this other viewpoint by using its own patterns of argumentation to dismantle it from within. That's really what Paul's doing here, but uh, he's very careful to say. So what's the identity of these people? Very clearly, being a Jew is a core thing for these people. They are very proud that they are Hebrews, they are Israelites. They have come from the seed of Abraham, which uh, makes them inheritors of the promises God made to Abraham in his family. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. In you and in your seed, I will bless all the families of the earth. They say, we're that blessing to the earth. We're seed of Abraham. Paul says, yeah, I can claim all those things. Notice that in Paul's letters, that's not something he ever leads with. But he says, yeah, they claim all this. Yeah, I'm I'm all that. And they claim the identity of servants of Christ, deacons of Christ. Paul says, I'm an even better one. And now he's going to explain And here's the irony of his boast. In what way is Paul a better servant of Christ? Verse 23, second half. With much harder labors, with far more imprisonments, with more severe beatings, often near death. From the Jews, five times I have received 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the deep sea. What makes Paul this great servant of Christ? Again, I've pointed this out. Paul has just come out of Ephesus where people are taking handkerchiefs that he's just touched and dropping them on the sick and the demon-possessed and the demons are fleeing and the sicknesses are going away. Why doesn't Paul brag about that? There are 
itinerant exorcists going out there trying to exorcise demons in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches and the demonized person responds okay I know who Jesus is I've heard of Paul but you guys are nobodies and beats them all up even the demons recognize the power of the ministry Paul's been carrying out in Ephesus Paul says nothing about any of that chooses to talk about how hard he's had to work and the Corinthians know that because when he was in Corinth he wouldn't take a penny from anybody he was in the marketplace building tents to make it and he was working hard day and night serving the brothers and sisters and working hard with his own two hands to support the ministry he was doing a thing that I've already talked about last week was surely a cause of great embarrassment to the aristocrats in the Corinth church. That Paul was living like a mere commoner, uh, of the basest of, of, of workers, menial laborers. Paul says, I've been put in prison a whole lot more than these guys have. How many of you know felons personally? Any of you know somebody personally who's a felon? Is that the thing they lead with when they introduce themselves to people? Is that what people want to hear? And we are not in an honor-shame culture like they were. In our culture, we're a lot less... Uh, standoffish about things that we would consider possibly shameful but back then it was all about honor and shame and Paul freely admits I've been put in prison so many times you wouldn't believe it that's no badge of honor that's an embarrassment I've been beaten more severely than any of these guys have when do you get beaten? When you do something the authorities don't like. And it's meant to humiliate and punish. I have been beaten much more severely to the point that I have often, as a result of these beatings, been at the doorstep of death. I have almost died on multiple occasions. That's how severe these beatings were. And he lists them. Five times the Jews gave me the maximum physical punishment that the law of Moses allowed. Forty lashes. Now, in Jesus' day, the, the Jews had decided, let's give ourselves a little buffer zone so that if we lose count, we don't accidentally break the law of Moses and do 41 lashes. So let's always do 39 just in case we miscounted. So 39 was the maximum physical punishment you could be given under the law of Moses. And the reason you were not allowed to go beyond that is that you didn't want a physical punishment to become an execution. But how badly can you hurt somebody physically? Well, five times the Jews had hurt Paul physically as much as the law would allow them to. And it wasn't just Jews. He says, three, three times I was beaten with rods. And all of these were in antiquity done uh, as public 
acts of humiliation and examples to others to not do the same kinds of things. When he says three times I've been beaten with rods, that's not something the Jews did, that's something the Romans did. I was in Corinth earlier this year and I saw the Bema, the, the seat of judgment, this raised platform on which the judge would sit and he would overlook and in front of it, and this was in the middle of the Agora, the big open marketplace where there would be market stalls around the, the edges of the, the outer edges of this open marketplace and there's that uh, judgment seat and in front of it there's a column about this tall and in the center a big iron ring. And uh, what they would do is they would chain you to that uh, or, or tie you with ropes to that, to that ring and that column. And then right in front of everybody, they would take out rods and beat you. And it was meant to be humiliating. And it was meant to be extremely painful. Three times, it wasn't just Jews, Gentiles had also three times given him this humiliating beating once he was stoned in Lystra. The book of Acts tells us about this. The Jews in Lystra stoned him and left him for dead. But he wasn't dead. He survived. I think we run past this too quickly. Have any of you ever been flogged? My dad spanked me, but that's not flogging. You know how, what the Jewish custom was for those 39 lashes? The person had to be bound to uh, a post, and uh, they had to have a bareback. They had to take off their shirt or clothing or whatever so that it would be a bareback. And the instructions to the person giving the lashings was that he had to lash as hard as he could. Now, for me growing up, a spanking might have been two, maybe three. But I was wearing my pants. And my dad wasn't doing it as hard as he could. I can tell you that for sure. But you're back. Now, so the first, the first one has to hurt. But the second one is crisscrossing the first one. And the third one is crisscrossing the first two. What does your back look like after 39 of these? At best, it's a mess of bleeding welts. We don't think about how long it takes to recover from something like that. Paul says, I have often been near death. I mean, these beatings came close to killing Paul multiple times. Three times he says, I was shipwrecked. Now we know in the book of Acts he gets shipwrecked on his way to Rome. That happened after he wrote this letter. So we're not talking about that one. That was at the very least number four. Three times he's been on a ship that has sunk. In fact, one of those times he spent a whole day and night out in the deep sea, out in open waters. Just waiting to see, is somebody going to find me? We've seen enough movies about that kind of thing to know how horrible that is. Everything Paul is throwing in here is, let me brag too. They're bragging. Let me brag too. None of the things he's bragging about are things anybody wants to hear about. 
And they're certainly not the things any of his opponents are talking about because that's not the version of following Christ they want to sell. They want to sell a version of following Christ that does not involve suffering or hardship. I wonder how many times Paul, recovering from these lashings, his back got infected. There was no antibiotics back then. And how many, after doing this multiple times, by this time his back had to be a mass of scars and Paul surely had battled infections many times with this so that his immune system was probably compromised. Paul was a frail, broken man because of the life he had been living following Christ. When he says, I am spending myself, he's not being metaphorical. He is wearing his body to the bone in the service he is doing in Christ. Paul says, you want to start bragging? Let me talk about what Christ is calling us into. And let me tell you how broken and fragile I am. There's something interesting about this list. Five times 40 lashes, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked. Paul, I think, is doing a parody of something that the Corinthians were certainly familiar with. There's a, there were two columns in Rome that uh, Caesar Augustus had erected, and he wrote an autobiography about himself on those columns and uh, talked about his great exploits and achievements. The achievements of the deified Augustus is what it was called. Now, we we don't know about that because the one in Rome survived, but we know about it because they had copies made and erected throughout Asia Minor and the rest of the Roman world, and there, there is a place in Turkey today where there are remains that have portions of this autobiographical thing that Augustus wrote, which means that they were all familiar with this throughout the Roman Empire. What did Augustus say about himself? Twice I triumphed with an ovation. Thrice I celebrated curule triumphs. That's where they put that special seat for him and all of that. And was saluted as imperator 21 times for successful operations on land and sea conducted either by myself or by my lieutenants under my auspices. The Senate on 55 occasions decreed that thanks should be rendered to to the immortal gods. In my triumphs there were led before my chariot nine kings or children of kings at the time of writing these words I have been 13 times consul contrast that with the numbered list of Paul and Paul is subverting this idea of Roman thinking and boasting and presenting a kind of boasting that is highlighting the very things a Roman would recoil in horror about. He continues. Verse 26. In frequent journeys, I was in dangers from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in dangers from my own race, in dangers from Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the wilderness, in dangers at sea, in dangers among false brothers, in labor and trouble, often through sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and nakedness. Paul 
Paul now talks about his journeys. I have traveled a lot. We forget this sometimes. Paul did not own a horse. He didn't ride around. He walked around. And if we just trace his missionary journeys, and that's just a few years of his life. We don't know what he did other years. He walked about 10,000 miles. We think of Paul sitting in, in cities, worshiping and writing letters. Uh, he spent a lot of his time just walking out on the road. And in antiquity, even though the Romans had secured uh, a measure of safety that was uh, unique in, in history at that point, it was still extremely dangerous to travel. If you went with a wealthy group and it was accompanied by Roman soldiers, then yeah, you could travel relatively safely. But if you're on your own, the bandits knew what corners of the road were hidden from view, what areas you would have to go through and nobody would be there so he says, I've, I've faced dangers from rivers. Oftentimes he'd have to cross a river. It might be overflowing because of rains. Uh, bandits. And they won't just assault you and take your stuff, but they're just as likely to kill you so that they don't have to worry about you coming after them. He says, I've been in dangers from my own race. We have in the book of Acts an account of how many times the Jews would not only chase Paul out of a city, but they would chase him all the way to the next city he went to and rile up the city against him there. And oftentimes the Jews were hounding Paul, but he says, it's not just that I was in danger from people from my own race, I was also in danger from people that were not from my own race. There's nobody I wasn't in danger from. In fact, he just left Ephesus where Demetrius the silversmith, not a Jew, a pagan who made idols of Artemis, has riled up the whole city of Ephesus against Paul. Dangers in the city. I've been in the city. It's been dangerous. I get out of the city. I'm in the wilderness. I'm still in danger. Where do I go? I, I get out on the open sea. I'm in danger there too. And the final in the list of dangers. You might think, yes, all these dangerous contexts, but when you're done traveling, when you arrive and you're there in church with the people who love Christ, they secure you, they gather around you, they protect you. You are safe, you are at home. Paul says, not even in church, in dangers among false brothers. Even inside the church, Paul is threatened. He talks about the labor and trouble he's been through. Sleepless nights. Paul does not talk about sleeping like a baby. He says, in my journeys, I've often gone through hunger and thirst. People quote verses. Never have I seen the righteous forsaken. Never have I seen his children begging for bread. And they turn that into a promise that God will never allow us to suffer any lack of any sort. Well, Paul's testimony is that that didn't work in his case. There were moments on his journeys when he had to go hungry. There were moments on his journeys where he didn't even have water to drink. Often, not just once or twice, often without food. In cold 
and nakedness. And I don't think by nakedness he means he was buck naked. But the idea is he was cold and he didn't have the adequate clothing to face the cold. Here's the image Paul is painting of himself in his grand missionary journeys that we talk about so much. I see an image of Paul huddled by the side of the road, hungry, thirsty, and shivering in the cold. That's the image he paints of himself in these glorious missionary journeys of Paul that we talk about so much and we look up the maps of in the back of our Bibles. Paul was just scraping by. There's more. Verse 28. Beyond what I've failed to mention. In other words, there's more of this kind of stuff I could tell you about. I'm just, I, I think I've given a sampling that's significantly uh, valid to make my point. So even beyond what I haven't even mentioned. Let me tell you what's really been a burden through this all. What's really weighed heavily on me through all of this. It's not the beatings. It's not the hunger. It's not the weakness. There is the daily pressure on me. The anxiety for all the congregations. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is led into sin and I am not burning with indignation? And if you wonder what Paul's talking about, read the letter to the Galatian churches. The true hardship Paul faced in all of this wasn't the physical stuff, the beatings, the uh, having to recover from them, all the, the, the dangers road, all that kind of stuff. That's not the true thing that has been hard for him. What's been hard for him is he has loved every one of these congregations he's been a part of, and he's stayed in touch with them in the regions of Galatia and further west in the whole Asia Minor where God has finally allowed him to have a significant ministry in Ephesus and, the, and its surrounding cities, and now back up in Macedonia and down into Achaia where Corinth is. In all these regions, all these churches, Paul knows these people. And he knows that the same dangers he has been facing, they are still facing. When Paul was chased out of cities... He left behind believers that he knew were staying in that city with the, with the people that had chased Paul out. Paul says, that weighed on me. It was a daily pressure on me, my anxiety for all the congregations because I participate with them. And finally, we get to the point where Paul explains this weird boast. What are you doing, Paul? Verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that pertain to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed through the ages, knows that I am not lying. One final weakness. In Damascus... The governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus to arrest me. And I was lowered through the wall, through a window in a basket, and I escaped his hands. Peter could talk about when he was in prison. 
how in the middle of a night, an angel of the Lord appeared in prison, put the guards sound asleep, knocked the chains off of him, and walked him out of the prison. Wow, that's a great story. What's Paul's story? There's no angel. There's no glorious deliverance. When the king sets guards at the gates of the city to try to arrest him, all Paul can manage to do is get somebody to lower him in a basket out of a window so he can scrape out and just escape being arrested. Why does Paul say that? You know, one of the highest honors in the Roman army was uh, the Corona Muralis. It was a golden crown that was made to look like turrets, like a city. There's an example of it on a coin. And it was given to the first soldier when Rome was besieging a walled city. The first soldier who managed not only to scale the wall of the city, but to successfully plant the standard of Rome in the city to be conquered and uh, set up the flag of Rome. That guy was given this golden crown that represented the wall of the city they had taken. Contrast that to Paul's description of how he vanquished his foes in Damascus by sneaking out out a window. And Paul is very deliberately taking the language of prideful boasting that was the bread and butter of Roman society and somehow was now weirdly mixed with this group of Jews who were buying into that mindset in Corinth. <coughs> and adding to that their own flavor of how this looked when you throw Messiah and Christ and the kingdom of God into the mix. Uh, he's confronting all of that. How do you respond to this false image of the glory of God's kingdom? You turn the boast upside down. And you say, if you're going to force me to boast, here's what I want you to know about me. If there's anything you need to know about me, it's that I'm weak. That's what I'll boast about. I'm not going to tell you how much better than you I am. I'm going to tell you that there's no way I would even be here but for God. I wouldn't even be here but for Christ sustaining me through these things. I'm not a strong person. I don't have connections. I don't have authority. I don't have anything. And you can tell from the example of my life. I have been at the mercy of the powerful in this earth over and over again, and they have done what they wanted with me. Why this type of boast? I think it's because it... Paul is refusing to do exactly what his opponents in Corinth are doing. He is refusing to become the object of devotion of others. And he's saying, don't look to me. I'm weak. I'm not strong. I'm not this glorious, powerful savior. I'm just a messenger. 
I'm nobody. And the, the one you need to focus on is not me. It's the Christ I'm trying to tell you about. And how often in our lives and in our churches do we have people who are competing with Christ for the affections and devotions of people in the church? Paul refused to do that. That's why he paints this embarrassing, humiliating picture of his ministry. I have a question. Why do you think we find it so hard to be honest about how utterly we depend on Jesus? What do we take pride in? <clears throat> Most often we look to our accomplishments, the areas in which we stand above others. That's certainly the way the world around us boasts. Paul challenges us to discover a completely different approach. What if the best we have to offer God and others is our weakness, not our strength? What if we choose to point people to our own frailty so that they don't look to us as their saviors, but look instead to the one who has kept us from utterly failing in this life? So often in church we preen and strut and compete and struggle to climb to the top of the heap when what we should be doing is freely admitting our weaknesses, our failings, the truth of just how fragile we are. People don't need to see us as conquerors. They need to see us as the spoils of war taken by King Jesus in battle as those paraded before him. King of kings, Lord of lords, prince of peace. We are his spoils of war. We are not the conquerors. Our own hearts need to know this. We're nothing apart from Jesus. And we have nothing to offer but Jesus. All who look to us for guidance need to know the same truth. Will you focus your heart on Jesus rather than yourself? And will you point others in that same direction? We're going to sing a song. This is the time in our service where we have an opportunity to respond to God's word. I don't know what God might have put in your heart today. Maybe he's calling you to a renewed commitment to put your eyes on him and abandon other, uh, the arrogance of this pride of this life that is so popular around us. That you will embrace a willingness to go wherever uh, Jesus leads and to endure whatever must be endured along the way knowing that he alone is the treasure worth clinging to in this life. Whatever God lays on your heart, this is your time to come forward. Uh, we're going to have some people here at the front. Let's all stand, and i like to ask these people to come forward now. We'll have people here at the front. Just come and share with them what God has put on your heart, and let them pray with you and for you. Please come while we sing.